Today's episode of Wings for Breakfast is presented by the Salvation Army. Your donations can help those affected by COVID-19 find help and hope. To give, ask your smart speaker to make a donation to the Salvation Army or make your gift at SalvationArmyUSA.org. episode of Wings for Breakfast, our twice-weekly Red Wings podcast on The Athletic. I am Max Boltman. With me, as always, is Prashant Iyer. And it was uh, an interesting day as we started to get something that at least felt like news out of the hockey world. Yeah, I mean, for the first time in, in quite a while, we, we got some more reports, uh, I guess, leaked out from you know either Gary Bettman's musings, different team presidents. It seems like you know, some ideas have come out here about potentially where and when the NHL draft could be held in relation to the rest of the season. Yeah, absolutely. Did either of them stand out to you more than the other? Yeah, so I guess, you know, we kind of start with uh, idea number one was that potentially, um, you know, with the NFL draft set to go off, uh, I think it starts tomorrow, right, Max? Uh, That potentially the NHL draft could be held prior to the end of the season where uh, you could actually have the NHL draft held in June, um, but potentially the season may not conclude if the season does go on at all until July or even August. And so, um, you know, you could have a scenario where a team, depending on how they decide to do the lottery odds and depending on how they, uh, you know, decide to determine who's included for the playoffs, you could conceivably have a team that has kind of their foot in both buckets, potentially in the lottery pool, as well as given the opportunity to to make the playoffs. So it's a, it's a really interesting kind of piece of news that came out today. Yeah, and, you know, it's one that I think, you know, Pierre Lebrun had a great story that came out today, kind of diving into some teams, uh, both in favor and against. But I think, you know, his point was that there was a little more against, which doesn't necessarily mean it can't happen. But I thought it was interesting that that was kind of a source of pushback was the idea of a team, you know, potentially winning the lottery and then winning the cup. That doesn't seem to me like it's inherently bad. Yeah, you know, I can see why a team would put up a stink, right? If you've, if you've got one of these fringe teams, like, you know, you take a team like Columbus that's that's right there on the cusp and, on, and now you're going to say all of a sudden you're going to put them in the lottery uh, that's done in June – and let's say, you know, the lottery balls bounce their way. They get a little bit of that Taylor Hall magic that's that's been left uh, that's left New Jersey. And now, you know, Columbus all of a sudden gets to, to claim some lottery magic and they jump up to, let's say, number three. Uh, and then later the next month, you decide that, OK, we're going to conclude the rest of the regular season and Columbus gets hot and they, they win their final, you know, 10 games. And now all of a sudden they're in the playoffs and, and they get hot and they run the gamut and they win the Stanley Cup. And now you're you're going to see that team have a, a third overall draft pick added to a Stanley Cup champion team. And, you know, I can see why other teams may be frustrated by that. That being said, you know, I'm kind of with you, Max, where, hey, that's just a team that, you know, the ball's kind of bounced in their favor. I don't see any reason to exclude them kind of out front. But I, I do think you, you have to make – 
some decision here as to if you're going to run that lottery beforehand, what are you going to do about the remainder of the regular season? Is it better to just call it where it's at? Because I think if you are going to conclude the regular season at some point, I think that really impacts how you're going to do the NHL draft kind of lottery process. I would agree. I, that would be my one gripe is that I, I I don't think that if you're going to do the draft ahead of time, then it makes much sense to have um, number one and um, any finish of the regular season. And depending on if you're going to do the lottery as normal, kind of the expanded playoff. Because the way I look at it is the point of the lottery, or, or at least like the, the common form of, of inverted draft order in general, is you want the teams that need help to get it and you don't want the rich to get richer. And when I'm looking at the teams who right now would be in the lottery, only really one, I can say, would be the rich getting richer, and it's the Canucks, because they've got a bunch of great young talent that they didn't get at the top of the draft anyway. Um, and they're going to have a shot at winning the lottery either way. So if, if they want to, you know, if they end up playing, the, if the, let's say the Canucks get the second pick and they play out some regular season games and they squeak into the second wild card and go on a run, well, then that's a pretty miracle run for a team that was on the outside looking into the playoffs with 11 games left to win the cup. I mean, it's just, you know, it, you either like the randomness and the competitiveness or you don't. I'm someone who doesn't mind it. Um, but I know there's arguments against that, and I, I think it could be some, some excitement. But I think what you can't, what I would what I would say would be tougher to handle if I'm one of the existing playoff teams or whatever is um, that scenario happens with like an expanded playoff or whatever, um, and, and they only get into the playoff because you know you went straight to the twenty four team or whatever, and and they got to do the lottery too. So I don't know. Does it mean does it mean you have to kind of declare whether you want to be in the draft lottery or the expanded playoff? I and mean, that'd be kind of an interesting wrinkle. I don't think that was how it would work, but you know that I guess that's an approach to solving the the that kind of one raised issue. But I, I personally don't think, you know, other than the, the complication of knowing who to be in the lottery, I don't think there's inherently a problem with a team getting lucky in the in the draft order and, and going on a, a playoff run. Why is it any different than a team getting lucky in the lottery and making, you know, noise at any other point, I guess? Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think the other thing that kind of separates, you know, this type of situation from other leagues is if you look at the likelihood of, of these players having an impact as soon as next season or the season after, you know, it's not as high of a likelihood as a guy that's taken second overall or third overall in the NBA, second or third overall in the NFL. I mean, these guys are going straight to professionals. They're, they're joining their club uh, for the very next season, and, and ultimately they're contributing right away. And so I think there's a little bit of uncertainty baked into some of these players and that really outside of Alexi Lafreniere, there's not a guarantee that any of these other guys uh, are starting the NHL season the very next year. And so with that being said, there is still a little bit of that uncertainty and randomness that I don't think you're necessarily building a dynasty here uh, by allowing some teams to kind of take these players that are now NHL ready right off the bat and kind of structure that way. There's still that randomness of decisions that are going to be made over the next one to two years as that player develops uh, before they can ever join. So, you know, I think it's, I think it's certainly something to consider. I can see why people would be upset at it. I think ultimately, if the NHL does decide to hold the draft, you know, prior to the conclusion of the regular season and they decide to finish out the regular season, um, you know, there's definitely going to be gripes about it. But I don't think it's going to be the end of the world if any of those teams on the fringe uh, were to jump up and, and, and win the lottery. I mean, you know, you don't really see the people that happens anyway. Right. I mean, it happens all the time. 
Um, anyways, and and yes, sure, if they're given a shot to, to run the gamut in the playoffs, I mean, that's fine. I mean, if they if they still have to go out and win all those games. So, uh, and, and there's no necessarily guarantee that a team is going to be able to repeat a run like that, um, you know, the year after. I mean, obviously, the, the Los Angeles Kings were a team that was able to do that and jump up when they kind of won their first cup from the eight seed position. And, and obviously, the St. Louis Blues were able to go from kind of worse to to first, but we just have had so few repeat cup champs uh, in the NHL that I just, I don't see it as being that big of a deal. Yeah, it's a tight league and I get that, but it, ultimately at the end of the day, if if you're, you know, a, a strong contending team and you don't like that a team that, you know, was in the bottom half of the league got to win the lottery and then has a chance for a championship, there's a very simple way to prevent them from doing it beat them four out of seven times, you know, like that's, it's so simple. If you don't want them to win the title, just beat them. If you're, you're up, you know, they're in the middle of the league. You're at the top. Just win. Yeah. It's not like they're being also handed a playoff by that. They're, they're not right. bypassing teams. I mean, they still got to go four rounds. They still got to win the Stanley cup. They got to beat four outstanding hockey teams that are in the playoffs. And, you know, with the position that they were in, they're not a team that should be favored in any of those rounds. So you know, I, I, I get the, the frustration about not being able to or about a team being able to really put their foot in both buckets. But that being said, you still have to execute. You still have to make the right draft pick. Who knows? Maybe yep. someone's going to go for Jake Sanderson at third overall. And, and, and who's to say what happens with that pick? So I think there's just still a lot of uncertainty there. And, and ultimately, I don't have that big of a deal. But uh, it will be very, very interesting to hear. Uh, what the NHL does if they are going to make a decision on what to do with the draft before they make a decision on what to do with the rest of the season. The teams I would actually feel a lot worse for are not the teams who, you know, are, are playoff teams who, who are mad that, a you know, whatever, a, a lottery team got to go on a run. It would be the teams who miss out on the lottery and then get passed in the playoff order, and then they get neither. That, I think, is the actual injustice that, if there is one, has to be guarded against. Yeah, and, and obviously there's, with the way the NHL kind of plays out, there's a handful of teams that are in position to have a scenario like that happen. And this uh, makes me think of kind of Michael Blake McCurdy's, one of his famous visuals is, yep. uh, you know, the sadness graph. And, and this would be the, the stereotypical sadness team where, you know, that team doesn't get the chance to pick high and gets passed on for playoff revenue and, and the opportunity to compete for the Stanley Cup. So, you know, I think ultimately what the league decides to do with the regular season has to be decided before uh, the draft, uh, you know, before they make any decisions on how and when to hold that. But, you know, that being said, I think it's strictly to protect those teams as opposed to the teams that good, got to dip in both buckets. Yep, I think that's a good point. How do you feel about kind of the, you know, while, while we're talking about the possibility of playing out the regular season or, or the playoffs, whichever way it goes, but the idea of kind of satellite, not neutral per se, but, um, you know, NHL arenas where you maybe you would have four to six cities or, or whatever the proposal being floated is where you you play kind of two to three games a day back to back to back with no fans in attendance to, to finish out the season or just go into the playoffs. Yeah, and so last time we talked about this, the NHL was initially experimenting with the idea of what satellite locations would be, and these would be kind of remote locations. Obviously, North Dakota was thrown out. Uh, I think I saw a report that New Hampshire or Connecticut was thrown out as an option. You know, Gary Bettman kind of came back today saying that, you know, satellite sites wouldn't really be the, the best way to do it. But now they're talking about 
all right, for some teams, maybe if we pick four to six NHL arenas and try to house everybody there um, and then basically run the rest of the regular season and potentially the playoffs from those sites um, based on geographic proximity, maybe that works. And I think I saw Emily Kaplan of ESPN kind of tweeted out that potentially Raleigh, uh, St. Paul, Minnesota, and, and Edmonton, and potentially an Atlantic division location to be determined. And there's not really many great options to pick from out of the Atlantic division for this, for something like this. But if you were to pick a, a fourth uh, team, maybe Montreal, um, you know, let's say for, for the Atlantic, and basically trying to group teams based on geographic proximity to play those out, I think it's an interesting idea, but ultimately I, I still don't think this is a safe idea. I mean, it's not to say that Raleigh or St. Paul or even Edmonton and Alberta, that any of those sites have good control uh, over the, the COVID-19 situation. I mean, sure, Raleigh has not had a massive outbreak, and, and thus far the social distancing efforts put in uh, by Governor Roy Cooper and, and others have, have worked to kind of slow the peak. But that being said, we're we're nowhere near out of the woods, and you still run the risk of, uh, you know, a second peak happening, a surge happening in any of these locations. I just don't think you could safely protect the players, even in these locations. And, and that's not even to talk about the, you know, technical challenges of executing something like this. How bad's the ice going to be if you're playing two to three times on it, uh, you know, a day or a week? I mean, how much are you going to bring those ice crew in to be able to staff that ice? Are you going to be able to keep them safe? Are they going to have to be uh, kind of quarantined from their families for the playoffs? Are you going to take the players away from their families in order to conclude the rest of this? Or are you going to potentially expose their family members um, you know, to this as well? I just don't think there's a safe way to go about doing this. So you don't like the idea at all? I don't like the idea at all. I think you know, at the end of the day, anybody – I think you have to go through the exercise of obviously talking about this. The NHL is a business. You have to see – if there are options that uh, protect your revenue stream and if there are options that you can execute safely. Um, my opinion right now is everyone that's trying to project when we can safely resume doing things is doing it blind. Uh, I think ultimately we will know when we can safely start resuming normal activities once we're in that moment, once you've had a two-week decline in cases with no new uh, or I should say no new significant number of cases uh, being identified once you've had kind of your hospital ICUs cleared out. And, and we don't know when that time's going to happen. And with, uh, with North America, each of those regions may attain that level um, sooner or later than one another. And again, bringing people from other areas to those regions may further complicate or may cause a surge in and of itself. So I just don't see a safe way of doing this until you really have reasonable control across the across the continent. Well, so what I think about is like how many people are required to put on a game that has no fans. I'm sure it's bigger than maybe sounds obvious just from that, but you know, you're not necessarily going to include all the ushers and all that. You'll need kind of the TV people, replay officials. I'm sure there's some league people who need to be there, uh, medical and equipment staffs that probably that number, you know, can, can creep up on you for sure. But it doesn't seem impossible to me to keep those people where they're only going to their homes or, you know, whatever, wherever they're staying and the arena on a given day. Yeah. And I, I think that sometimes, 
you know, on the surface, it seems like that's not an issue. But again, if you're not going to quarantine those individuals and kind of isolate them from their families and from their homes, then what Mm -hmm. you're effectively extending is you're extending that same kind of isolation and quarantine to each of those people's family members. So if, let's say, someone in that household for an arena worker, let's say it's a member of the ICE staff, needs to go to the grocery store and they go to the grocery store and someone in the grocery store is, you know, infected and maybe asymptomatic and and they come in contact with that person. You know, now you're bringing that back into the household, that arena worker comes back to the arena and and all of this happens before anyone's demonstrating any symptoms. And so it's either you, you're going to take these people away from their families and, and isolate them for months to do this because uh, it's going to likely take several weeks uh, to be able to pull off the rest of the regular season and the playoffs in these remote locations, or you're, you're not going to be able to safely do this. Uh, does, does the testing work before symptoms, or is it the situation where you wouldn't test positive before you're symptomatic? Well, the, you know, you can certainly test positive even if you're asymptomatic. The challenge is again, or contagious, I guess, more symptoms. Yeah, yeah. And, and the challenge with that is the sensitivity and specificity for the test. How, um, you know, how many false positives, false negatives, how many tests are you going to conduct on each individual person? Um, you know, we haven't seen a lot of data published on the kind of false positive and false negative rates associated with the different tests utilized but you know it could be you know some of the numbers that we've seen have potentially been as low as 50 percent for some of the rapid tests and and as as high as as maybe 90 percent in terms of accuracy of, of testing correctly but even then that's that still leaves you a percentage of people that are going to test negative when potentially they're positive and unless you've got antibody testing ready at that point uh, I don't know that you have any way to safely kind of confirm that a person is truly negative. Um, and again, without a large portion of the population uh, being infected, I think the, the false negative rate is higher than we kind of imagine it if you follow a base theorem sort of a, a approach. Yeah, I think that's a really good overview of the challenges there then. Like, I mean, it's, it's obviously I think the uh, certainly my instinct and I'm, I'm, I don't know about you, but like for me, like any anything that kind of floats the idea of there being something else going on in the world and especially in the world of sports, I, I'm, my inclination is to want to be really hopeful and, and want to look for a reason it can work. But uh, definitely it's not something that would that would be able to go off uh, without some significant hurdles being cleared first, basically. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. I think if we come up with antibody testing and you're able to test and identify those that, um, you know, are potentially clear and have been infected and are now uh, have some kind of basic immunity, or if you're going to potentially, you know, one solution out there is you take all of the people that are going to be involved to quarantine them for, let's say, three weeks before you even do any of this. And then you, again, maintain that isolation just to ensure that no one is infected at that point in time. Again, I'm not sure how you're going to totally do this because how are those people going to get food? Even if you have people bringing them food, are those people bringing them food infected? It's just there's a a large part of the dominoes. It's a great illustration where I don't know if you saw the the ad that was run in Ohio where one you basically had a, a kind of a platform of matches and you had one match that's lit and that's your one infected person yeah. and you you drop it and if all the matches are in close proximity all the matches are catching 
But if you space out all those matches, that harmless infected match just falls to the ground and doesn't actually light anything else on fire. So that's the challenge. There's just so many dominoes of, all right, fine, isolate everybody, but then how are you still getting those people food? Is that kind of fair, humane to do that, rip them from their families, do this for months on end? I just, I don't know. And, and all at the expense of just trying to bring sports back. I think I, I think all of us want it back. We need some sort of distraction. We, we're kind of craving this, but we have to be smart about it. We have to do it safely. And right now, I just see too many potential challenges to be able to execute this safely. I get why they're going through the exercise, but I think at the end of the day, you're going to have to conclude there's no safe way you can resume this, this season until either A, you have readily available antibody testing to confirm those that have been exposed, or B, you have a vaccination available. All right, well, I'm going to spend my evening preparing a proposal for an army of single childless personal chefs who will be uh, on location constantly cooking foods for players and arena workers to take home for their families so that it's possible to have a, a, a grocery-less, takeout-less experience for the duration of this. I mean, hey, look, it, you know, did you ever watch Seinfeld? Max? Very well-paid single childless chefs, I will add. <laughs> did you ever watch Seinfeld? Uh, scattered episodes here and there. Never like, you know, I don't think I ever watched it like on like a weekly basis or anything. So, so for those that ever watched it, you know, you could maybe get the, get away with this by following kind of a bubble boy perspective, literally have every single person live in a bubble that's, that doesn't have anything actually enter into the bubble. Um, you know, but again, that being said, I just, I just don't see a, a really safe way to execute this. So again, we're going to continue to get leaks about this news as the NHL brainstorms ways to do this. Uh, it sounds like thus far they are being smart about it. They're not going ahead and implementing things. There's no, uh, there's nothing really set in stone, but they are discussing proposals. I think they have to do that. It's their job. But at the end of the day, I just don't see a safe way to do this. For sure. Very, very, uh, very thorough analysis there of it. And I, hopefully that I think, I think that should give people like a good idea of what, you know, what the real picture is and, and how complex these considerations are going to be. Like, you know, the answers to these questions, obviously, that you, you can come up with a with a, a nice, you know, template or platform for it in not too long. And then it's these details that is what's really going to make or break whether or not it's able to happen and whether it's not it's worth that level of input, um, you know, as opposed to, to just calling it. So I, I think that's a really good, a really good overview there. Yeah, it's it's not an easy situation, and there's just way too many moving parts right now. And, and like I said, anyone who's trying to take a guess at when we can safely reopen things is is purely speculating at this point. We're going to know based on, on the trends with the data, and, and that's unfortunately how you're going to have to go about this. I want to take a quick break right here to tell you guys a little bit about the Black Tux. The Black Tux believes every groom deserves a better experience when it comes to finding formal wear, a suitor tuxedo, for their big day. Did you know the Black Tux was actually started by two guys who had one of the worst tuxedo fittings you could imagine? Turns out they aren't alone in this frustration. Just listen to these one-star reviews from competitor tux shops that shall not be named. Go elsewhere. This place is pretty terrible, unless you're dressing like your grandpa for Halloween. We felt weird buying a suit from somebody so unhappy. We were afraid his bad vibes might follow us to our wedding day, so we left. What I love about the Black Tux is that they have an easy online ordering process that brings your suit or tuxedo straight to you. Just pick a style at theblacktux.com and request a free home try-on so you can feel the fit and quality before you commit. And if online isn't your style, the Black Tux has showrooms all over the country where you can find your fit and plan your look. From there, they'll ship your order two weeks before your wedding so you can check it one last time. Talk about commitment. 
Whether you're buying your outfit or looking to rent, you won't find formal wear experience or designs like the ones you'll find at the Black Tux. If you want your wedding day to be remembered for the right reasons, order your suitor tuxedo at theblackstux.com and enjoy 10% off with code WINGS. That's theblacktux.com, code WINGS, for 10% off your purchase. The Black Tux, formal wear for the moment. All right, so let's uh, transition topics then to kind of our our main topic for the show, which is a what-if scenario. You've compiled a few of these, and if fans have others they want to hear us do, please don't hesitate to let us know uh, what you want to hear about. But the one we're going to do today is a what-if that I have heard floated uh, in general kind of comment sections and Twitter mentions as long as I've been on the beat, which is what if the Red Wings had chosen to pursue um, a contract extension with Marion Hossa rather than Johan Franzen? Prashant, do you want to kick us off there? Yeah, so, you know, basically as, as you introduced, Max, I think there's a lot of fascinating what if stories that surround this team and I think this is the one that uh, really is is the most recent one that I think has still lasting ramifications as Johan Franzen still on the Red Wings cap but uh, I feel like it's an interesting one to discuss because I think it it often gets mischaracterized a little bit so uh, you know I'll kind of walk us through the introduction of it here but effectively uh, so the Red Wings win the Stanley Cup in 2008 uh, they defeat the Pittsburgh Penguins, and at the time, you know, Atlanta had uh, traded uh, Marion Hossa to, to Pittsburgh, and, and Pittsburgh uh, loses to the Wings in the in the finals. And so Marion Hossa at this point is trying to chase the cup. He signs a one-year deal in Detroit. Uh, they obviously go through the 08-09 season. Incredibly talented team, but this time, again, facing Pittsburgh, they come up short in a cup final that never actually happened because the year 2009 was wiped from the history uh, books from hockey. Um, but then the, the 09 offseason comes, and the Wings actually had a lot of decisions to make in the 2009 offseason. In addition to needing to re-sign Marion Hossa, uh, they also had Henrik Zetterberg, who needed to sign a contract extension. They had Johan Franzen up as a free agent, and they also had deals that they needed to deal with for Mikhail Samuelson, who was a very productive uh kind of role player for the Wings, could chip in the 20 goals. Yuri Hoodler, who has, you know, had an outstanding season the year prior and was kind of hitting his peak. Thomas Kopecki, who was, again, another great role player. And then at this point, the Wings are actually, like, trying to bring up younger players and Darren Helm and Justin Abdelkader. And, and Darren Helm had just had a really successful playoff run, uh, scored the, the series-winning goal against the Chicago Blackhawks in overtime. Uh, so the Wings had a lot of decisions, and so the the big one they had to get out of the way was first Henrik Zetterberg. And so they go, they lock up Henrik Zetterberg to a 12-year extension because, again, at this time, you know, you can make those deals that exceed the eight years. And so the Wings, they go, they give Henrik Zetterberg a 12-year extension. And now at this point in time, they have a little bit of money left. And this often gets framed as a decision of Franzen or Hosa. I think it's important to remember that both Hosa and Detroit wanted Hosa to be there. And the Wings actually offered Hosa a long-term deal in the range of kind of 40 to 50 million over a 10-year period. The problem was for the Wings, they weren't really going to budge on a contract that came in at a cap hit higher than what Nick Lidstrom got paid. And that was kind of the way the Red Wings ran. That was kind of the way that uh, Ken Holland ran in terms of contract negotiations. They weren't really willing to, to dole out that kind of money to you know players, and they weren't going to pay people really a lot much, a lot more than 
than Marion Hosa or than uh, than Nick Lidstrom. And so when Hosa's coming in asking for uh, you know a lot more money, which ultimately he gets sixty three million dollars from Chicago, uh, you know, in his extended contract, that was just far more than the Wings could really offer. And so the Wings ultimately decide we'll, we'll take Johan Franzen. They offer Franzen an eleven year, forty three and a half million dollar contract. Uh, so again, they get Franzen at a pretty decent bargain, coming in just under four million a year. But ultimately, because of that deal and the Zetterberg extension, they're not able to keep Hosa and fill out the rest of the roster. And the rest is history because the very next season, Hosa joins the Chicago Blackhawks. They win the Stanley Cup, and the Blackhawks win the Stanley Cup two more times after that. And after the 09 season, the Red Wings win a grand total of three playoff series since then. And Johan Franzen has been on long-term injured reserve uh, for the last several years. So, so Max, as you were kind of refreshing through this, what are your thoughts on how things could have gone differently if the Wings were able to keep Marian Hossa uh, at the expense of Johan Franzen? Well, one thing that interests me when I think about situations like this is this, you know, I I remember at the time when Marion Hosa was a Red Wing for that one year, I thought he was like extraordinarily old. Like I thought he was like in in the last stages of his career or whatever, which is maybe one of those things where like when you're a kid, a 30-year-old seems like a retiree or whatever. You know, I think I was I must have been 15 or so in that year. So, um yeah, I, I think I think uh, I thought he was older than he was. I didn't realize he was just 30, but I also think about the fact that, you know, there's a bit of a stigma to, to a long-term deal for 30-year-old players, players in their in their 30s. And, and I think that the fact that um, – I, I kind of wonder what would we say today about the Red Wings or any NHL team giving a long-term deal like that to a 30-year-old player who, even though he was a point-per-game player, like you're still seeing a decline from a guy who had been a 100-point player just a couple years prior. Yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. And, and that was kind of the big conundrum for the teams. Now – at this point in time, teams had realized that they could circumvent the cap by right. lowering their average annual values on these contracts by doing these. And, and at that point in time, what players could simply do was just retire and they would never have to worry about, um, you know, having to deal with that cap hit. And then after the, the lockout in 2012-2013, in, in it's kind of introduced that these are now cap circumvention uh, issues and, and if a player were to retire, that would actually kind of retroactively count against you um, based on how much you had saved by circumventing the cap. And so now teams got put into a bind because of that. And I think that certainly colors our opinion. But at that time, that was a genius move and it was a brilliant move. And the, and the Wings executed it multiple times with uh, deals for Henrik Zetterberg, with deals for Johan Franz, and I believe even Nick Cronwall's deal qualified for it um so you you know you had a lot of deals that you were able to kind of get away with and it was a really smart move because you could save long term on these guys and they could just simply retire when you were done um and and they weren't able to play at that level anymore and you didn't have to worry about a big issue so i think in hindsight it was a very smart move for for ken holland to make uh, nowadays, you know, knowing what we know and with the rules that are in place, you wouldn't go anywhere near a, a 10 or 11 year contract for a guy that's 30 years old. And, and the other interesting piece to all of this is Johan Franzen was born in the same year as Marion Hosa, yeah. right? right? So, you know, I think, again, a lot of people, um, you know, forget this. And I think Max, it got pointed out in your, your Q&A today that you did on The Athletic that Franzen wasn't really drafted until he was 25. 
doesn't join Detroit until he's 26. So when the Wings sign him in 2009, he's just finished his first 30-goal season, but really it was only his fourth full NHL season. Uh, But he's already 29 at this point. And very interestingly, kind of the comments that Ken Holland makes after he signs Franzen is we're happy to sign him to this 11-year deal because we think he's just entering its prime. So so it really kind of tells you how much we've come along in the last 11 years in terms of what we know about an NHL player's prime, where nowadays we kind of think it's closer to the age of 24. For sure. And, and it, I think it just goes to, to reinforce what I thought was every time I've heard this hypothetical in my two years on the beat, I've been like, what, you're mad that they chose the young player over the old players and that what you would prescribe them to do? Well, no, they just chose uh, a, a less proven player of basically the same age over a player who had had a longer career. Sure. And so he was more veteran in that sense. Um, I, I'm not I'm not saying that I definitively like. I don't, I don't, I don't remember what I would have thought at this time, or, or I, I can't guess what I would have thought at this time. Um, you know, there's also the fact that you know Franzen, uh, at the time, like in, in, I was rewatching a game from kind of this era the other day. Spoiler alert, um, and you know Franzen's style of play, that big body, was probably a little more prized than it would be in the current era. But it's hard not to look at where things went from there and just see how effective Hosa still was. He's still not only is he still hovering around a point per game for seasons after this, but he's also still getting Selkie votes and he's on championship teams. And I, I would say it's impossible not to wonder if the Red Wings don't maybe squeeze another cup out, maybe in that year of like what was it, two thousand twelve, thirteen. Yeah, I mean, 2012-13 is when you've lost Nick Lidstrom and you've lost uh, Brian Rafalski at that point, but you still have Pavel Datsyuk, you still have uh, Henrik Zetterberg, and that team actually pushed the Chicago Blackhawks, Marion Hosa's Blackhawks, to to a Game 7. And if Detroit wins that, I mean, who knows? I mean, the, the Wings had a 3-1 lead in that series, and if they had been able to close that out... Uh, who knows what would have happened? They may have been able to go on and do more. I think really the two years that come to mind, though, are, are 2010, 2011, and 2011, 2012, where I think Detroit was outstanding, but they were very much under the radar because, you know, they just didn't have the same, they didn't have the same playoff success and ultimately falling to the Sharks uh, and then falling to the, the Predators in 2012, Nick Lidstrom's last season. I think they just didn't have the same kind of uh, press about them. Those were two very, very talented teams. I think in particular the 2010-2011 team uh, was simply outstanding. And who knows? I mean, if you have hosts on one of those teams, I think you're looking at um, you know, a really solid chance at winning the Stanley Cup or at least getting to the finals there. Now, do we know that Hosa wanted to stay in Detroit? So we do know that because there was press okay. at the time that, that Hosa was interested in, in taking a long-term deal with Detroit. Uh, it's just from a money standpoint, with the number of free agents uh, and roster spots the Wings needed to fill, they simply couldn't give Hosa the money in the, in the same ballpark uh, that he wanted. Like I said, he ultimately gets $63 million, I believe, over 12 years uh, from the Chicago Blackhawks. So that, that puts you a little over $5 million average annual value. Um, at that time, again, being a lot more than $5 million is nowadays. The Wings reportedly uh, were only able to go as high as $50 million over those 12 years. So again, that's almost a million per season pay cut for a player 
of Hosa's caliber. And again, Hosa is a guy who had 100-point season uh, not too long ago and had and is still to date Detroit's last 40-goal scorer um, from that one season in 2008-2009. So it's tough to say, but he clearly wanted to be in Detroit, uh, was interested in a long-term deal, but ultimately the Wings couldn't make anything work uh, by also pursuing Franzen and and Henrik Zetterberg's extension. Yeah. Well, what ultimately interests me in something like this is really it comes down to one thing is would they have won another championship with Hossa instead of Franzen? Because ultimately either way, you know, Marion Hossa right now is like, what is he like 41? So he wouldn't still be here. He probably would. He's been retired for two, three years now. Ultimately the Red Wings were still going to have to rebuild at some point. Marion Hossa staying around was not going to mean no rebuild was ever going to be necessary. But if it would have meant one more championship, then it's a pretty big deal. Yeah, and I think that's that's the part you have to decide. Is somewhere between 2009, 2010, and, and 2011, 2012, the last three years you have of, of Nick Lidstrom. I mean, Lidstrom still wins a Norris in that time frame. Uh, I believe in 2011, 2012, if my memory serves me correct, the Red Wings also set the NHL record for winning 23 consecutive games at home. Just think about that compared to, yeah, to nowadays. Geez. I mean, they win 23 games in a row at home. And so, you know, if you think about adding Marion Hossa onto those teams, now again, you would be subtracting Johan Franzen's production. And at this time, Johan Franzen's still uh, healthy. He's still playing in those games. Uh, so that is a, a significant loss. Um, but that being said, I, I do think Hossa is a superior player uh, to Franzen over those uh, those three years. And I do think if you take Hosa away from Chicago and you put him on Detroit and you take Franzen away and, and you could even put him on Chicago, I still think Detroit comes out ahead and I think they win at least one more cup uh, somewhere in that time frame. Yeah, that's incredible. How does it change things for Chicago? So, so I imagine you think that they win at least one less cup. I think Chicago wins at least one less cup. Uh, you can take away their 2009-2010 one, or you can take away 2012-2013 or 2014-2015, whichever one you want to take away. But I, I do think they win at least one less cup. And I'm also curious how Jonathan Taze develops. Uh, because one of the things about Marion Hosa that separated him really from the rest of the NHL forwards is he was an unbelievable defensive forward. Uh, he had really Datsuk-like skills at picking the pockets. And it was a lot of fun to watch those two guys playing on the same line because they would back check like crazy. And, and having Datsuk, Zetterberg, and Hosa, three of the, the most complete defensive forwards on your team, I think was just absolutely dynamic. And I, I do wonder how much of Taves' reputation as a defensive center uh, comes from being able to work with a player like Marion Hosa, learning from a player like Marion Hosa, we have to remember Jonathan Taves is still very early into his NHL career at this point, only a couple of seasons in. Uh, and so I'm assuming Marion Hossa had a substantial de- kind of uh, impact on his overall development and, and that Taves may be a different player um, than what he be- ultimately became, which was in his heyday, arguably one of the best defensive centers with Datsuk and Bergeron and Kopitar. Yeah, man. I I do love those scenarios where, you know, obviously I'm sure Red Wings fans just want to hear that they, you know, oh man, what if they would have won another cup, you know, but, but it's the league wide ripples are crazy. I mean, 
Jonathan Taves, how, how many draft prospects do you hear when they're asked kind of like who they model their game after? I would say any center with even a passing interest in defense lists Jonathan Taves among like one of the three guys that they, they say they pattern their game after. Or even sometimes it's like a, you know, that's something you'll hear in, in analysis of those players, right? I mean, I know that's a small thing in the grand scheme of things, but it, just from a legacy standpoint and all the ways that, that things change, um, I, I'm always interested in those little those little wrinkles. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. And I and, and quite honestly, I think the other thing we have to think about here is you have to also examine uh, Holland's decision to give Franzen uh, this 11-year contract, a guy who's 29 years old, but with only uh, four years of experience in the NHL at this point. You know, one of the fascinating things that stuck out to me, and Max, I don't know if you actually saw this when you were um, looking this up, but if you actually go to look up articles about um, kind of the host and Franz and dilemma, and you look up Holland's decision to to sign um, Johan Franzen. One of the footnotes in the NHL.com article for that, the last paragraph of the article says, "And Johan Franzen missed time this previous playoff run with a subdural hematoma." Which, if those of you that don't know what that is, that's essentially a a, a small brain bleed, and mm. it's fascinating. In hindsight, to think that an NHL GM was comfortable handing 11 years to a player that was coming off of a small brain bleed. And and ultimately, I think it was kind of indicative of Franzen's history of concussions and, again, his propensity to have concussions moving forward. That, that nowadays seems like it would be very much a red flag for an NHL GM to consider giving term, or at the very least should be, a major red flag for an NHL GM to give any sort of term. Yeah, I mean, it probably shows some level of um, of heightened awareness of the severity of those those issues. And I don't know when I think back about like the old NHL, I just think about it almost in like a Wild West kind of way, where it's just you know, especially in Detroit where you just won for so long. I don't know. It, it, it's it's quite possible that you know those those. Um, you're willing to sign someone to do an 11 year deal if they have helped you win a cup. And, and, and obviously Franz and, um, Franz and did, right. He helped them. He, they got to yeah. get the front. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. 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 Franzen's 08 season was right. A big reason why they win the cup. For sure. So, I, I mean, it, it's, it's one of those things where I, in, in hindsight, obviously it looks like the wrong call. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't remember the inputs to it. And, but certainly when you hear something like the, the brain bleed tidbit. Um, I don't. I have to imagine that that's not happening today. If if you get that that word of information. Yeah, and I mean the fascinating part about all of it is again it it happened in the 2008 playoffs, I believe, and he only sat out I think two or three weeks, and then ultimately came back uh, oh. after. And again, that's again just now knowing what we know about Franzen. Uh, and his concussion history, you just have to wonder how much of an impact that had. And, and if a scenario like that happened nowadays, how that player would be managed differently and, you know, things along that that line. But that was just kind of a, an interesting tidbit that I admittedly did not remember or remember reading about when all of this happened in in real time. So I think it's just something else to consider about how the Wings kind of manage that situation. And again, Ultimately, it never was a Franzen or Hosa. They wanted both. They offered both. But Hosa ultimately wanted a little bit more money than he was able to get. 
And so the rest is kind of history, as we say. But who's to say that if he stays and, and the Wings maybe lose Franzen, uh, that the Wings don't end up with at least one more cup in that time frame? Yeah, absolutely. Anything else on this that you want to get in before we uh, move to the questions? No, and you know, like uh, like you said earlier, Max, these are kind of interesting what ifs that we've identified over the last twenty five years that are somewhat relevant to the the Red Wings' current uh, kind of history and, and things about them. So, if there are other ones that you're interested in, uh, we'll kind of sprinkle these out throughout the uh, the weeks to come. Yep, absolutely. All right. Um... Dylan asks if you could have one prospect from another team's farm system who who you could take or who would you take and why. Also, which Red Wings prospect would you swap for them at equal value? So, in other words, if if you're going to take someone uh, who's like the top prospect in the King system, are you willing to swap like Moritz Sider for them, for example? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, the way I approach a question like this is, all right, who's the best player not in the NHL right now? And the answer to me is Alexi Lafreniere. And so whoever's got the number one pick is honestly who I would be picking on. Now, that's a little bit cheating. So if I, if I can't say that, I think, uh, you know, another guy who's done outstanding uh, and is not in the NHL at this moment, I think he's quietly flown under the radars, is one of the centers from last year in Dylan Cousins, um, who after kind of having that really nasty finger break um, in training camp, and I think that kind of set him back a little bit. He ends up being, I believe, the WHL MVP, if I remember correctly. And so he's in the Sabres system right now. I think he's, uh, I think he's an absolutely outstanding player. I think he's a guy that uh, you know the Wings would be lucky to have, given how much uncertainty there is with their uh, kind of second line center positioning. But that being said, I don't know that I would want to swap more at Cider for Dylan Cousins simply because I would be creating a hole to fill another hole. And I think having more at Cider fills one hole for you um, that Dylan Cousins can't. And, and similarly, if you have Cousins, you know, Cider doesn't, uh, you, you're going to have this big hole where Cider would be. So I think given this upcoming draft and what's happening, I'd rather keep Cider and be able to load up on a, on a forward or even a center uh, as opposed to actually swapping for Cousins. But I think he's one of the better players uh, that's not in the NHL right now. I agree with that reasoning. And I also think it's it's important to note that, like, you know, you can look at a player and say that's the prospect that I would steal and also say, you know, he's still playing junior hockey and how does that color the ability to kind of properly contextualize versus a guy like Cider who, I'm not saying that Cider's like the number one prospect in hockey or whatever, but he's got to be among the top prospects in hockey and certainly among the top in ones who you're most confident in the projection now that you've seen him play at the AHL level in such a big workload. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's very fair to say. And, you know, seeing Cider advance in that next uh, kind of bracket uh, the next level up, if you will, from that tier. I think you have to be very encouraged by that. And and just to correct this, I misspoke. He was his Dylan Cousins was his team's MVP, not the WHL mm. league MVP. 
Yeah, that's that's good to note. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, Cousins would definitely be right there for me. He's a guy who I thought you know was a very real option, uh, or would have been a very real option for the Red Wings at six last year. And obviously, he goes one pick later to Buffalo. Um, I'll say Trevor Zegras, who had another really good year for for Boston University and an outstanding World Juniors. He really looks the part, but you know, it's not like there's no questions. It, it's I, I think he's a really talented, gifted, smart prospect, and I think it's still fair to wonder what of it. You know, what if it can he bring with him to the NHL? I wouldn't bet against him, and that's why I'm picking him here. But um, there's no sure things, and, and that's one of the tough things about if you're making a trade prospect for prospect, um, I would want to be either upping the upside so drastically that I don't care about, you know, the uncertainty, or I would want to be getting a more certain thing at a similar upside, right? So otherwise, you know, otherwise you're doing exactly what you, what you said, which is plug it, uh, yeah, plug in one hole and you create another. Yeah, and that's exactly it. And that's why, honestly, the only sure thing I would do is I would trade for, I, w- I would trade Moritz Sider for the first overall pick, whoever's got it. But obviously, that's not a deal that someone's going to make if they're in that position. But Alexi Lafreniere is the best player, not in the NHL right now. But that being said, Dylan Cousins is right there. There's Trevor Zegers right there. But you don't want to make that swap because the Wings just have too many holes right now. I will add for context, this might be a little outdated by now. It was about three months ago that Corey did his midseason drafted prospects ranking, Corey Pronman. Um, and in the, the top two that he had were Zegris and Cousins, and they're in a tier by themselves. And then beyond that, Cider is in a tier behind uh, Bowen Byram and Cole Caulfield, but in that same tier, and Gregory Denisenko in that same tier, that, that next tier. So he's obviously ascended to that level where he's among the top five to ten prospects outside of the NHL. Um, and, you know, maybe there's a tier above that, but it, it's certainly, um, you know, there's something to that. Yep, completely agree. All right, uh, moving on. Um, Nezzy asks, does the fact that Jeff Blaschel is still the Red Wings coach mean right now mean he is back next year? I mean, I, I don't think so because right now we're in a suspended season. The season has not been officially ended. And so with the Red Wings potentially having this out clause this offseason as, as kind of reported by Craig Custance earlier in the year, I see no reason why the Wings would choose to act on uh, terminating Blaschel's contract when it's still technically active with the season going on um, and then having to deal with kind of severance pay and things along those lines. So I think where he's at right now has absolutely no bearing on uh, his official status moving forward. Yep, I would I would agree with that. I would say don't read too much into it in either direction. It does not mean, you know, I know I'm sure this is probably coming up because there was the report that Gerard Gallant interviewed with the Devils. And I think people out there probably are wondering, you know, well, hey, you know, are the Red Wings going to get in on any interviewing? And I don't know the answer to that. Um, but as long as Jeff Blaschel the coach, he's the coach. And so does it mean that definitively? I would guess it's probably not a safe assumption. Um, but, you know, take that for what it's worth. He is still the coach at this point. Um, and Themius, oh, it's basically a similar question about the Gallant thing. I'll, I'll skip over that one. Um, Mike, who's my buddy asks, how far do I have to walk right now to beat your team? And I'm going to answer this question on the air because I want to see if Mike is listening. Basically my friends and I have, uh, in order to try and get ourselves off the couch are doing like a walking league. And so we're, we divide it up into teams of three and we each walk as much as we can every day. And at the end of the day, we kind of have like a reporting period where, you know, we, uh, we say how many miles we walked and our team is, is crushing Mike's. Um, I don't know for certain how much my teammates have walked, but I will say so far, at least one of my teammates is over seven and a half miles. 
and I am at about 5.3. So um, that's two out of the three, Mike. If you're listening, you're getting some inside info out of that. Um, pretty good. Yeah, no, it was it was a good walk. I went. Uh, it was about an hour and a half, so that was a it was a nice uh, way to break up the day, get some fresh air. It snowed, which was less than ideal, but um, not too bad. Uh, and then Tori Harrington asks, "What would it take to trade for the for the rights for Anthony Sorelli or Mikhail Sergachev? Is it realistic with Tampa's cap number and probable small cap next season, or will they just trade off other pieces for draft picks like they did with JT Miller last year?" Yeah, I I don't think it's realistic that Tampa decides to sell low on yeah. Sorelli uh, or, or Sergeyev, particularly within their division. Um, I think that's that's also worth noting that I just don't see Tampa doing that. I, I think, you know, once the season's officially concluded, they're going to look to make moves to, to free up money. And again, the culture in Tampa has been now for years, similar to what the Red Wings had built in the 90s and early 2000s. If you want to stay as a part of this winning team, you're going to take less money uh, than you would get on the open market. You see it with Stamkos, with Hedman, with uh, Kucherov, with Braden Point. And so I would suspect that that guys like Sorelli and Sergachev, if they're going to buy into that environment, they're going to uh, follow suit with that. I don't see either one of them kind of stepping up and demanding big, big deals here. So I suspect Tampa is going to find a way to make a couple of shrewd moves, and they're going to end up keeping both those guys. Yeah, I think vastly more likely than the possibility of trading for either of these two players who are emerging um, young cornerstones, I would say. I don't know if that's a little too strong, but certainly young key players on their team, uh, certainly more likely than getting one of those guys in a trade is that Tampa's need to re-sign one of those guys allows you to get a sweetheart deal on someone else. And I, you know, The JT Miller deal was not cheap by any means, um, but I would say that Vancouver certainly still got a really good, really key piece who's still pretty young out of it. Um, so are the odds of trading for someone like Sorelli or Sergachev good? Not one bit, but could could the need for Tampa to re-sign them in a potential cap crunch free up someone else who could be useful? That seems more likely. Yeah, and particularly the other thing to remember here is if the NHL suspends the season or officially cancels it and teams get compliance buyouts, uh, right. think about Tampa being able to use that on a guy like Tyler Johnson, who's got $5 million for four more years after this and he's already at 29 going on 30 or or even Alex Kalorn who's 30 and has got 4.5 million for the next three years so if that ends up happening uh, I would strongly suspect Tampa gets out of this jam but if compliance buyouts are not handed Tampa's a team that you then want to target given that the salary cap is likely not going up I think it's going to be parked at 81 and a half million that you want to target and say hey Tampa if you want to package a first round pick and Tyler Johnson or, or Alex Kalorn, and again, Tampa doesn't have the 2020 pick, so it'd have to be 2021 or 2022, both which have excellent players at the top of the draft. Um, you know, you want to say, hey, if you're willing to do that to get out of that deal, uh, then yeah, by all means, give me that, give me a first round pick, and that way you can be freed up. Or the alternative is you force their hand with a, something that you've suggested, Max, which is offer sheeting them. Yeah, and that, certainly that can create more tension. But as as you saw last year with the Aho offer sheet, um, it's it's very easily that it's very very possible that in the effort to avoid giving up a premium asset to get those guys, all you do is make the negotiation easier on the team who you're trying to to put pressure on. Yeah, I think the one difference about Tampa this year is they have two guys. Yes. And so you could. 
potentially force their hand if Tampa announces the first contract. Uh, you could then swoop in with a second, or you could decide which of those two guys you think uh, Tampa is, is kind of less likely to match on and, again, give a deal that avoids you having to give up a first-round pick, which, again, we'll have to see what the terms for the offer sheets uh, you know, if that changes at all as a part of, um, you know, what's going on with, with this season. I mean, it may not be the same as last year, but, you know, you can avoid a first-round pick uh, by going as high as $4.2 million, which, again, doesn't seem like a lot, but if you're able to do that um, on one of those guys like Sorelli, uh, you may be able to, to get away with it, particularly if there are no compliance buyouts. Yep, and that is all uh, we've got for questions. So I will end on this note while we're talking about the possibility of uh, of first-round picks and future first-round picks. If I were a GM, I would be desperately doing whatever it takes to get somebody's unprotected first-round pick for next year because of the way I I think the, the uncertainty that all of this could have going into next season, whether it's a short off season because of, um, you know, some resumption of play and playoffs or a long off season because there is no return to play. Um, I want to take advantage of whatever the weird consequences of that are in terms of, of a great team that has every reason to think it's going to be great. And then just the weirdness of this throws it off. Is that fair to say? Yeah, and then again, you know, aside from all of that, there's outstanding players available. I right. mean, you yes. have Aturati, you have Chaz Lucius, you have Luke Hughes. Um, I mean, even you can extend it out to 2022 as well, where you want to make sure you're getting, uh, you know, high picks with Brad Lambert and Shane Wright in that draft. I mean, those are two guys that are legitimate threats to be, again, the best prospects since uh, since Connor McDavid. So, you know, really anything you can do right now to get draft capital in 2021 or 2022, particularly in the first round, those are smart moves. Yep, yep, absolutely. All right, that's going to do it for us. We'll be back at you early next week. We will not talk about the Lions draft uh, unless you want us to, in which case we can. But uh, either way, take care this weekend. Have a good one. Bye.